Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy Thanksgiving weekend! Of course, that means we have a Clips episode for you this week, and it's a good one. First up, we'll hear a clip from the Betty Saar episode from the six-part Recording Artists podcast series recently released by the Getty. The series, which is hosted by art historian Helen Molesworth, builds on collections at the Getty Research Institute. From the show page at manpodcast.com, we'll have a link to the Getty site where you can download all six of the episodes into your podcatcher of choice. On the second segment, a re-air of my January 2019 conversation with Robert Pruitt. The Museum of Fine Arts Boston is now showing three large-scale Pruitt works as the inauguration of its banner project. First up, Helen Molesworth and Betty Saar. After the break. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? See new scholarship revealed about 19th century art's best-kept secret in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas, a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tiso's spectacular world in James Tiso Fashion and Faith, on view now at the Legion of Honor Museum. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division, presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of Indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu voices. In Recording Artists, a new Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hesse. In episode two, Molesworth is joined by artists Larry Pittman and Amy Silman, as Lee Krasner, a first-generation abstract expressionist, discusses her formation as a painter, her relationships with fellow artists, and more in interviews from the 1970s. Binge the entire series now at getty.edu slash recording artists. Welcome back. Here's a clip from the Betty Saar episode from the Getty's Recording Artists podcast series. As we pick up the audio, Moldsworth has just finished a quick summary of Saar's family history, and we're just getting into her art-making life. Saar's earliest artistic explorations were in printmaking and design, and she also made enameled jewelry under the moniker Brown and Tan. Like many artists working in California at that time, she played in the spaces between art and craft, not making too much distinction between the two. However, like many women artists and many African-American artists, she felt that the category artist was not exactly open to her. Family responsibilities, particularly caring for children, was a challenge faced by many women artists. By the time Saar was in grad school, she was married with two young children, and she often brought one of her daughters to class with her. Saar needed validation that what she was doing had merit. Here she recounts the story of a teacher who gave her the push she required. So we were like rapping, and I told him that I was having some problems with my husband as far as his ego and so forth and, and taking this class and he said like what the important thing is that once you, you know that you're an artist and you found on to it and, and that's like your particular jelly bean which was his word then you just hold on to that and nothing can really change it but up until that time no one had ever talked to me that way and so like I didn't even know that I had it in me. it took like an outsider to say well that's what that is in you you know and you should like hold on to it. In addition to the encouragement of her teachers, Saar, like many Los Angeles-based artists of the post-war period, was deeply influenced by the exhibition program at the Pasadena Art Museum, led by legendary curator Walter Hopps. 
1967, she visited an exhibition of the East Coast assemblage artist Joseph Cornell. The exhibition had a profound effect on her as an artist. Cornell made small diorama-like constructions of found objects and images in modest wooden boxes. Hops installed them embedded in walls and on pedestals, each one spot-lit. Individually illuminated, the boxes took on an otherworldly aura, becoming magical dreamscapes, mini-universes designed for the viewer to get lost in. The dramatic display hit Sar with great force, and after seeing the exhibition, she began to use found objects in her work. Marcy Kwan's recent book on Cornell ends with a chapter on Sar's work. I asked her to tell me more about this fateful encounter. She says she was actually struck by Hobbes's quote, she uses the term, jewel-like installation. And I think she also was quite struck by the fact that he was using found objects. And so what I would say that she's getting from him are, you know, one, the use of found objects and the ideas that objects are more than just their material appearances, but have histories and lives and energies and resonances. Two, a sense that objects can connect histories, that a photograph from the 19th century carries with it the lives of the people who are opposing the photographer, the time in which she was shot, and then the life it lived subsequently, which is something that's really important to Cornell as well. And then three, I just think the idea that the world is not just what we've been given, but you can actually use the material leavings of the world to remake it somehow. Quan places Saar firmly within the post-war American legacy of assemblage, or assemblage, a form of art making that uses found objects and images and assembles them into new configurations. If pop artists used the images of shiny new commodities, then assemblage artists tended to dumpster dive, using the leftovers of commodity culture. Exemplified by artists such as Robert Rauschenberg and Joseph Cornell on the East Coast, and Bruce Connor, John Outerbridge, and Noah Purifoy on the West Coast, assemblage became so important that by 1961, New York's Museum of Modern Art dedicated a major exhibition to the form. Assemblage coincided with the Civil Rights and Black Panther movements, and the confluence of these two events, one aesthetic and the other world historical, created new opportunities for African-American artists. I asked Linda Good Bryant, the founder of a gallery dedicated to showcasing the work of Black artists, what she thought about the predominance of assemblage in Black art circles. She began by recalling acts of assemblage from her childhood. You know, at least during the time that I was growing up, in the Black community that I lived in, in in Columbus, Ohio, we really did use whatever resources we had to create what we needed. In fact, probably the most influential uh, people in my life was a family friend, and his name was Tom Dillard. And Tom Dillard had a magical, magical room that he created in the garage behind his house. And in that room, there were all sorts of things, from dolls to chairs to broken tables to pots to whatever. And he would make things with them. So that's one way I come at it. The other way is is that if you want to be creative and you can't afford things from art supply stores, what better material to use than the material around you? And I wasn't surprised when I first talked to David Hammonds about when he decided to stop doing the body prints uh, and was using brown paper bags and barbecue bones and hair. And what he said to me was, you know, why is my art restricted to art supply stores? Sar also decided not to be limited by the offerings of the art supply shop. She was a collector at heart, and her regular trips to the Pasadena flea market meant that she had been collecting old and discarded objects for quite some time. They ranged from wooden window frames, found photographs, old fabric, and most notably old racist memorabilia, such as cookie jars, postcards, and commercial products that used racist marketing imagery. After her exposure to Cornell's work, Saar began to combine her found items into diorama-like boxes. 
And through her use of found materials and assemblage, she, along with a handful of other Black artists living and working in Los Angeles, began to develop a specifically African-American aesthetic. The foundation of this aesthetic was twofold. Cast-off materials on the one hand, and images that depicted African-Americans on the other. Here's Saar breaking down the various concerns in her work. For me, the work is divided into, like, groups. The first group, which I kind of go in and out of, is the kind of mystical or occult. And when I was a graphic artist, by that dealing with drawing and painting, my imagery was primarily that, using tarot cards and zodiac signs and things like that. And then after uh, the black movement started, I found my work changing for several reasons. First, because of of strong feelings that happened with that movement. And uh, sometime after that, I started collecting like derogatory black images. By that, I mean like Aunt Jemima's and Piccaninny's and black samples. And so I thought like, well, I could just keep these things or I could like transfer some kind of message, how I relate to them or so forth. The first of Sar's works to receive notice and acclaim were her box constructions that dealt with the racist stereotype of the mammy, notably her 1972 work titled The Liberation of Aunt Jemima. This box centers a notepad holder in the shape of a mammy figure, a caricature of a black domestic laborer imaged with exaggerated features. The background of the box is papered over with the repeating smiling image of Aunt Jemima, a mammy figure used to sell fake maple syrup to an affluent American public. Sara's work transforms the racist stereotype of the black mammy into a revolutionary figure. Through her exploitation of pop imagery, specifically the trademarked Aunt Jemima, Sara utterly upends the perpetually happy and smiling mammy by giving her a rifle in one hand and a broom and a grenade in the other. The shotgun was reminiscent of the iconography of the Black Panther movement, and the work oozed a kind of take-no-prisoners vibe. Simultaneously caustic, critical, and hilarious, the smile on Aunt Jemima's face no longer reads as subservient, but rather it glimmers with the possibility of insurrection. The liberation of Aunt Jemima also refuses to privilege any one aspect of her identity, either SARS or the Mammies, insisting as much on women's liberty from drudgery as it does on African-Americans' emancipation from second-class citizenship. In 1975, when Cindy Nemser asks Saar about her use of the Aunt Jemima imagery, it sounds like Nemser is not fully considering the racial implications of the work. Taking this kind of uh, figure that, that classifies all black women as an Aunt Jemima and making her like one of the leaders of the revolution, you know, by uh, dealing in, in violence. Although she's a pretty strong character anyway, the Aunt Jemima character. Yes, I think she's sort of always been very yeah. well loved in, in, in Yeah, in a way. but see, like there, there was a time that even during the revolution, blacks put down other blacks like Uncle Tom's and Aunt Jemima's. And it's only recent that we realized that the reason that we're here is because of their particular role that they played, you know, subservient role mm-hmm. to, like, protect the youth so they could grow up and get an education and become... Was there really different. an Aunt Jemima? No. Well, first of all, the, the the black women that were portly played, like, a mammy role or a nanny or a house servant, and they covered their hair and they wore that kind of apron, but they're an Aunt Jemima character. And because of that uh, product, they actually selected a black woman to play Aunt Jemima who went around. And she was their symbol, you know. Right. Well, it just meant good things, actually. Well, she was a woman who could cook, who was, like, full of love and kind of uh, a family person, you know. The only negative thing about it is that was the only way that black women were portrayed. I hear Sar very gently schooling Nemser as she smuggles a history lesson about slavery and its complex effects into a casual interview between artist and critic. And a few minutes later, Nemser wanted to talk about the humor in the work. I thought the Aunt Jemima, what I liked about it is it had a lot of humor to it as well as as a significance. It was like taking something bad, making it something good in a way. Well, that was the intent. And one felt that. I don't know. It's like a certain Jewish humor. <laughs> yeah, when, well, you know. it's, it's, it, it does have that, that same similarity. It's like you have to laugh to keep from crying. Exactly. Linda Good Bryant brought a critical lens to this exchange. I have to wonder 
what would have been the follow-up questions and comments if Cindy had been black. Because there's so many other ways to have responded to that. And one would have been to have allowed Betty to talk more about the work so that she could reveal if there was humor in it and what was the nature of that humor. What I think is interesting about Betty is that she's just so wonderfully considerate and respectful and patient. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Larry Pittman Declaration of Independence, the most comprehensive retrospective to date of the work of the prolific painter. Organized by Hammer Chief Curator Connie Butler, the exhibition features nearly 80 paintings and 50 works on paper spanning Pittman's entire career. A selection of Pittman's drawings will comprise Orangerie, a standalone installation providing an intimate space for viewing Pittman's works on paper. Larry Pittman, Declaration of Independence, is on view September 29th, 2019, through January 5th, 2020. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. This fall, for its 30th anniversary, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a union of three internationally acclaimed artists, all originally from Ohio and exhibiting together for the first time. Here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin explores ideas of place, time, language, and perception through world premiere and site-specific works in the WEX galleries. Additional off-site components activate spaces at Ohio State and around the city of Columbus. Here is on view through December 29th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Nancy Lupo, Scripts for the Pageant, at its downtown location through March 15, 2020. For her first solo museum exhibition, Los Angeles-based artist Nancy Lupo stages a conversation between the architecture of MCASD Downtown's Feral Gallery and a new sculpture, drawing attention to our presence among everyday objects, materials, and spaces that are often overlooked, but that deeply affect our understanding of the world. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Next up, one of my favorite conversations of 2019 with artist Robert Pruitt. We taped on the occasion of an exhibition of his work at the California African American Museum. Right now, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston is exhibiting three large-scale Pruitt works as the inauguration of its Banner Project. Pruitt's work at the MFA depicts members of the Boston community wearing and interacting with works from the MFA's collection, including an ancient Egyptian beadnet dress, 20th century Yoruba wrappers, and an American pictorial quilt by Harriet Powers. The exhibition will be on view at the museum through the end of 2020. Robert Pruitt, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. The show at the California African American Museum is full of portraits. Why does portraiture interest you? I don't know if I'm interested in portraiture so much as I'm interested in the body. They are portraits. They're, you know, images of people and faces and identities, but I think my first love has just been trying to render like bodies and kind of like a, like a very relaxed kind of natural state. And so I think that might be a little bit different than like, you know, like the history of portraiture and, and all the sort of like ideas that kind of go into it, even though that stuff kind of comes into the work, I think initially it's just about the activity of pencil paper and the figure. So did that interest come from day-to-day experience or did it come out of art history? I mean, I mean, honestly, it came out of my childhood reading and drawing comic books, really responding to like, you know, different drawing styles and like those sort of really heroic kind of body figures. But like, as I kind of went through art school and my approach to it changed, but I think at the root, it's still, I'm still just sort of that same, I have the same enjoyment of drawing the the body as I did when I was in high school and junior high. You have collected comic books off and on throughout your life. Are there things in your work that when you look at a show of it or look at a wall of, of, you know, six or eight pieces that you think, hmm, yep, that's from comics? You know, I tend to do things that, I, I tend to be attracted to things that are, like in my own work, that are maybe a little absurd or abnormal. And I think that that comes from that world of comics where like almost anything can happen. People are superhuman and, and that sort of thing. I don't necessarily make 
superhero. Sometimes I do, but but I think I'm trying to render people in, I don't know if absurd is the right word, but just in kind of not normal attire and context. And I think that's sort of drawn directly from from that world or it's rooted in that world. I'll say it like that. I think absurd is a really good word because the first time I saw the show at CAM, I, you know, I'd seen your work before, but there are, are a number of works in the show that have absurd elements, at least. I'm thinking of a work like Supreme Lover in which you have a man who's kind of aggressively, quite aggressively posed, and he has a tiara of roses in his hair. That's not surrealistic. It's, you know, but it is, but absurd's a good word. <laughs> that drawing is meant to be a little, yeah, I guess absurd works. Yeah, it's not, it's not a crown of thorns. It's a crown of the flower. <laughs> that whole, like for me, the whole thing is taking these figures that come from these sort of religious histories and reimagining the mythology in a way that I think could work for myself and what I imagine could work for like a larger community of African-American people, you know, in the country. So instead of this sort of like obsession with the tortured Christ figure, I wanted to make sort of a suave, maybe, you know, virile figure. So like the thorns become roses and it becomes about life and vitality and like creation instead of, you know, this sort of sacrificial death. I don't know if you notice, like on his shirt, he has a, a small drawing and that's based on a, a Basquiat drawing called The Birth of Earth. And uh, so it's about like the, the creation of the universe. So I'm trying to reimagine a mythology that is more affirming, I suppose. Everything about the pose is that. I mean, the the way his arms are positioned, I don't want to say hanging because that, that brings to mind, you know, a different kind of Christ. But the way his arms are, are posed, his shoulders are, are, are thrown back, I mean, really far back. He's a guy with an enormous amount of presence. I'm glad you brought up kind of where some of the poses come from. This show is full of Catholicism. Or is it full of capital C Catholic art? Or for you, is there a distinction? I, it's not Catholicism. I mean, I, I grew up Baptist in Texas. That's Baptist. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I'm just trying to locate it, locate myself in a in a position where even understanding the roots of the the religion I was even like raised in was r- really distant. Like, so even knowing that that Catholicism, not just like Catholicism as a Catholicism as a thing, but even as as a historical root for the thing that I was being raised in. I didn't know anything about it. I knew very little. I think maybe the reason you would sort of feel that in the work, I don't know if it's just sort of the the ritualistic kind of nature of some of the materials I'm putting in the work, but it's not, it's not Catholicism. I mean, it really, it really is like a Baptist, Protestant, obsessive kind of religiosity that I was sort of looking at. So it's more mining Catholic art. I suppose, but I, I think without even knowing it, if that makes sense, I don't know. So take take a Ascension from 2017, which is a drawing in the show. We'll have an image on, on manpodcast.com. It, it is a picture of a woman. She is looking above and beyond us, a heavenly gaze. Your presentation of her is kind of cut off mid-thigh. There is very much a feeling that, I mean, you know, there's obviously the title of the work, but there's very much this feeling that she's ascending, you know, like this is a Spanish or Italian ascension scene. And it's hard. I don't know. It seems very capital C Catholic art to me. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I think some of the some of the symbolism is just kind of baked into like the larger culture. I I mean, I'm obviously, you know, I have a degree in painting and I went to art school and sort of I don't I don't really I don't really respond to some of the histories of art in terms of producing my own work. But I think maybe because those things are kind of, like I said, baked into the culture, they kind of pop out. But for me, like the notion of a figure ascension, like the ascent, the idea of ascension in a religious sense, it, it existed in like my own childhood, my own sort of religious childhood that was absent those histories. Like it was how it was how those, that thing was interpreted for me in a religious setting. And then I'm reinterpreting it through this figure who is meant to be 
like there's a sexual tension. There's also these spaceships on her blouse that kind of imply alien abduction and sort of mixing in religion and science fiction and, you know, sexual joy kind of all as a as one thing, kind of like a, you know, a religious moment, I guess. But it doesn't, it's still for me, it's a very, I'm still drawn on like a very particular place, I guess. The the other, the other big departure from kind of the history of art, which is not full of spaceships on tank tops, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, is the way you pose her, her uh, arms and hands. So in, in a Catholic ascension, we would see Mary with her arms out in, 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 in ecstasy. The left hand of the figure in your ascension keeps drawing my eye over and over again. It's it's bunching up, either lifting or holding her skirt. But it's also kind of right at eye level, because you're looking up at her. We'll talk more about about your 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 drawing point of view. Tell me about that that hand, her left hand, it's on the right hand side of, of the painting and and how you got there. So I, I wanted it to I mean how I got there is a whole convoluted you know i have models they come in and they do things and i respond to those photographs and build from that i don't think i directed my model to do this thing but it was sort of seeing images and then like as i'm putting together an exhibition and building on that gesture like oh i really like that what can i how can i like you know build this into a thing because i don't remember what the model was actually wearing (laughs) <laughs> well, it doesn't matter almost. <laughs> yeah, I, I make a lot of changes. You know, I, it, when I'm when I'm starting the, the thing, yeah, I don't think she had a dress on at all. I think it was just tights or something. But anyway, it was it's really meant to be like a lifting to kind of I, I kind of wanted to like really double down on this this notion of upward movement. I mean, there's the gaze looking up. We're looking up at this woman. It may be even like over the top, like she's looking up There's spaceships. We're looking up at her. The skirt is coming up. And like, I, I just really wanted that feeling of like, you know, like you're looking at the drawing and maybe you yourself are starting to look up like as a, as a, as a thing, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, one of the things you do a lot, the point of view you use in a lot of your portraits, including in this one, is, is of slightly looking up at your subjects. Kind of Charles White, but minus the mannerism, if you will. And it's consistent enough thing you do across a lot of your work that it feels like a foundational decision. Do you remember when and how you came to it? Oh, it has been so gradual. I mean, you know, I'm an artist. I'm a human. I can be a little bit of a hypocrite. Like one of the original sort of influences when I started making these things was Michelangelo. And I mean, like this is back in like undergraduate and like the Sistine Chapel, like looking up at like these these images that you look up towards, right? And those, and like reproducing those images, but in like a context that was African-American. And I felt like those images were so grand that I wanted them to feel large and kind of above us, the viewers looking at the work. So it kind of started there. And I think it has now, like, I, I don't even know if I think about it anymore. It's so like, it's the position I take when I'm starting the process. And I think it, it kind of feel, it fills the frame in a way that's interesting to me, like to slightly be a little bit below the person. I also want them to feel heroic. A little bit of the comic book influence. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't, you're, I don't mean to suggest that your points of view are as dramatic as, as you know, we get in cells of comic books, but but you're but you're not being as dramatically mannerist as Charles White either. No, 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 no. You were talking about how both in Supreme Lover and in Ascension that you're collapsing multiple things into a a single artwork. And in other interviews, you've talked about how one of the things you think about is having past, present, and future in a single object. And I think that's in each of of these first two works we've been talking about. Is that kind of a rule for you, something that that has to be there, or is it more kind of an underlying philosophical approach? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a rule because I, I don't feel the need to like constantly adhere to it, but it is one of the things that like undergirds everything. And part of it is just about where I feel like the consciousness of African-Americans kind of exists. I mean, maybe everybody's like this, 
but I'm thinking through it through like that very particular lens of having like sort of a hyper awareness of your sort of origin, like black people coming to the United States through this history of slavery, right? Which is the, not everybody comes through that kind of same history, obviously, but it's the sort of foundational like root. So we're like like obsessed with trying to like understand that moment because so many things happened in that moment where your understanding of like your history and your identity were snatched away. So we have this like obsession with that. And then there's this aspirational thread that runs through black culture of always trying to, you know, achieve and aspire. I mean, even, you know, I think it kind of runs through our DNA in a, in a, in a bit in that we have been located in such of a limited like space in this country that we are always trying to like climb out of it. So there's this like obsession with the past and obsession with the future at the same time. Like, and like it exists in your mind at the same time. And, and it just feels like, you know, almost like time travel. And I wanted to, I like to like try to have that in the work, literally kind of present in the work that, that all these things are happening in the same consciousness. One other kind of broad thing I'd like to ask about before we get back into specific drawings is, is your palette. You don't use bright colors, you know, colors that might be of a specific moment or temporal or even art historically referencing. And you mostly prefer muted tones that kind of vaguely suggest, at least to me, that we might be looking into the past. What about muted tones, if you'll forgive it, uh, uh, the phrase, uh, appeals to you? I dyed the paper with coffee to kind of give it like the entire drawing, like uh, sort of a, you know, brownish, kind of, I don't want to say vintage, but it does kind of give it like a an aged sort of look. And so for me, it's mostly about having that color underneath the work as like a foundational skin color for these, these figures. So when I first started making these large drawings, I was working on, you know, that really terrible kind of craft paper you can get in a roll. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff behind like my continued use of it. But part of it was that I was really trying to, as a young artist, I was trying to reject this notion of whiteness, even though we're talking about, you know, you know, I suppose the color white as like a neutral kind of background that we work on. I wanted to like maybe for myself shift that to where this kind of brownness was the neutral color and everything else kind of happened around that. And so that paper worked perfectly for that, but that paper... Aside from it, you know, having whatever problems with acid and being archival, which was never a huge kind of concern for me, the paper itself was really difficult to work with in that it tore really easy, creased really easy. So when I had to make the decision to move to like, you know, traditional art papers, drawing papers or whatever, I wanted to bring back that color. And I found that with, you know, dyeing it myself, I mean, I tried washes with like acrylic paint and other things, but they kind of changed the surface in a way that wasn't comfortable to work on. And I, I used tea. I, you know, I was talking to, she also worked on that paper before. And anyway, I, I, I think I'm rambling, but I started using tea and then I switched to coffee because it gave me a quicker, deeper color to work with. And so I think my interest in that is just it's reflection of like a skin color, a, a natural sort of more organic color. And then, you know, pulling out from that, like my, my, my color palette is really just based on the colors that Conte comes in. About maybe three, four years ago, I really stopped using a lot of color in the work, mostly because I kind of wanted to like get a hold on what I was doing. It's really kind of difficult to explain but I felt like I was kind of all over the place and I really wanted to maybe focus on drawing and so I wanted to limit the choices that I made and that meant I don't need to deal with all these other colors I can just use this like really blacks reds and like you know whites from erasers or highlights and that sort of thing and I can really focus on my draftsmanship and you know, scale and... Probably the less color you use, the more the viewer notices body, 
posture and positioning. Right. I think so. I think so. So I'm kind of fascinated by the way you use recent art history, too. And as a way into that, I'd like to talk about a work called Mama from 2011 that's in the collection of the Nasher Museum at Duke. It's a really terrific object. And I don't know, we'll have, we'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. I'm going to let you choose where we start. Do we start at the very top of the artwork or do we start with her T-shirt? That piece is actually, it's not a diptych, but I did two pieces at the same time. There's one called Oba and then there's this one, Mama, and it was like, I don't know, I just imagine them together. But I mean, that's here to, here nor there because they'll never be together. So, uh, Oh, the T-shirt says Sankori. Oh, and yeah, she's wearing two T-shirts. She's wearing two T-shirts, yeah. One on her head, one covering her face, and one, it, it's a T-shirt of, of um, a painting called Lottie Mama, L-A-W-D-Y, painted by Barclay Hendricks, in which a woman with an afro is before a, a gold kind of, you know, 16th century Italian painting or 15th century Italian painting, gold ground. Well, let's start with the T-shirt, because we both keep talking about the T-shirt. How did how did that Barclay Hendricks end up on that T-shirt in something you made? So, I, you know, in talking about art history, you know, you, you asked me about Catholicism earlier, and similar, there are swaths of, like, I guess what I would think of as like Western art history that I choose to not represent in the work in very literal ways. I choose to bring in artwork by African-American artists who have come before me as a way to kind of, I'm trying to create like a canon for myself, I guess, like artists who I've looked at that have kind of influenced my work or who I've or maybe even if not influence, I'm just really attracted to the the work that they make. And I try to like, in a very literal way, like bring it into the images that I make, just to point towards them. And I think Barker Hendricks is, is like, you know, a really obvious kind of reference just in terms of figurative black work, you know, figurative images of people of color and African-Americans. Against neutral grounds, foregrounding the figure. Right, exactly. I think he's sort of like a kind of just a very obvious choice for me to kind of be influenced by. But so I, I, in, in that idea of like, you know, past, present and future, there's also the headdress. So I feel like those two things, like the image on the shirt and the headdress kind of work in tandem for this, the person who's wearing it to kind of basically create their kind of inner identity and like exhibit it to us, like thinking about a possible history for themselves and a possible present. If we can think of Barclay Hendricks work as, you know, you know, a present moment, like it's, it's modern history. It's not like ancient African history, but, and so it's a way for this person to kind of inhabit both of those histories at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I should, I should describe the headdress. I think it's Yoruban. And as you mentioned, it's a Galete headdress, headdress, which is a reference to the Galete Festival, which is about honoring women, ancestors, you know, women dead or alive or, or goddesses. So it makes sense, given how Galete uh, headdresses were were used or worn. But why the T-shirt? And what does the T-shirt say? I mean, the T-shirt is, I mean, it is, it is like, it's an informal sort of attire. Like T-shirts being very like, like a very like, everyday informal sort of attire and I think maybe in contrast to like the notion of like a ritual headdress like it's almost like an undressing of the of the figure there's the headdress and then there's the t-shirt as the mask and the t-shirt says Sankori which is a, another thing that I, I referenced in the work in some of the other works that I've made but that t-shirt literally being part of the costume that maybe this person was wearing but the rest of the costume no longer being there. And so this being underneath this sort of idea of like his painting, I don't want to speak to what his painting might be about. I'll speak to what like I kind of get from it, but this notion of beauty and power, the the symbolism of the Afro and the moment that maybe this work was sort of produced out of, and even like the title kind of having a very emotive Lordy Mama, like it really kind of speaks to like an excitement about a person's beauty. And that being underneath this costume and this figure 
maybe exhibiting that and, and feeling a relationship to that space in a sense. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how else to talk about it other than like I do kind of sometimes piece these things together from like, you know, like how do I build an image that points to like five different things at once and make sure that they all <laughs> that they all exist together at the same moment. It's doing that right down to the mid-century chair she's sitting in. <laughs> chairs, man, the chairs really, they are less of a pointed selection than a history of, I don't know if this is crazy, but like a history of like the spaces and studios that I've worked in. And like, they're always like, it's the chairs that are just, that just happen to be in a particular studio that I'm working out of at the moment. And my, it's kind of interesting to kind of remember those spaces for me. And like, I feel like I'm kind of hiding those histories in the work for myself. But I, I remember that being a very comfortable chair. You know, I was using it as my desk chair and like. Totally. But it also adds kind of another specific time reference to a drawing that's full of them and and, 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 and neat futzing up of, of tidiness, of potential tidiness. So this, this work, Mama, like a lot of your other works, reference disparate cultural traditions and joins them to make something new and different. And on your website, you refer to it as fictional ethnography, which I think is a phrase that comes from literature criticism. And I want to talk about that a little bit more via a portrait of yours called Steeped, um, which is also from 2011. It's in the collection of the Virginia MFA. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. Tell me how you decided to make her hair. I had done a few drawings with pyramids as like these sort of Afro shapes, like, but instead of like them being like sort of large and, and as absurd as this thing is, and these were like, you know, what we would consider like traditional Egyptian pyramids, I guess. I would kind of make them into almost mohawks. Like I was really trying to think of ways to create architecture. So, so to kind of take an Afro that's already architectural in a way and to add further architecture to it? Right. Like I think one of the first things I did was, you know, Tatlin's Monument. And that led me to, you know, these pyramid shapes. And that led me, you know, to, you know, a further exploration into like even this sort of thing and wanting to like draw it. Like I, I was doing those drawings and like they were maybe too subtle, I guess. Uh, I wanted something, you know, almost keep coming back to the word absurd, but like I wanted it to be, you know, something that couldn't really exist and to try to, 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 to render that. And so, and, and it's called steep and it's, ah, I don't know how else to talk about it. Like it's really thinking about like the angles of the pyramid as being steep, but also like a person kind of steeped in a particular history and thinking about, I think at the time I was looking at like the potential African presence in South America, you know, pre-Columbian uh, history. Yeah, and like It's a South American pyramid that kind of comes up out of her Afro or is part of her Afro. Right. And like the belief amongst like many African-American people that like, you know, there's a there's an embedded kind of African culture in those histories. And like, which I think maybe that history is not some of like some of the historical things that they might not they may not be as true as we believe them but for me it's like the belief is actually what's more interesting like because it it kind of counters the things that we feel like we are told about ourselves and so then there's this sort of resistance and even exaggerated identity like oh i have no history no i'm at the center of every history and and kind of like wearing that as a symbol or as a sign you know that and and for me, that's what she's doing, like wearing these these other histories. And and also I'm looking, I was really looking for ways to identify, you know, cultures and histories and civilizations that were not Western, that were not European, to really kind of dig into like the mythologies and histories that kind of shaped the world that were outside of Europe. And so sometimes those things pop up in the work and they do a lot, often in tattoos. So there's a work in the cam show called Creator and Redeemer from 2016, where the history or histories pop up in both of the tattoos on both of the women in the drawing. 
The one I want to raise is the woman on the left who has a tattoo on her back, her entire back, that looks like the lady, the Our Lady of Guadalupe, the classic 17th century uh, Mexico-originated image of an apparition of the Virgin, except you do something to it. So what is the iconography you changed and why? I switched the Virgin for Harriet Tubman. And so it's an image of same, you know, all the same sort of uh, elements of that image, but with a figure, with, with a drawing of Harriet Tubman in place of, of Virgin Mary. As a, you know, as a almost like saintly figure in not, our history. Not, not almost. I mean, you've made her one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so, yeah. No, I mean, one of the things I love about what you do with it here is, of course, Our Lady of Guadalupe isn't a rep- is very specifically not a representation of the Virgin Mary. It's a, it's a representation of an apparition uh, a 17th century Mexican priest, I think, had of the Virgin Mary. Were you consciously, intentionally using, I don't know, tricking history to make Harriet Tubman, who of course was a real person, and, and famous for her role in the Underground Railroad, in which she, to stay alive, had to be an apparition, um, were you constantly playing with that idea of of apparition and belief and and and, and yeah, all that? I, not not apparition. I mean, that history is really interesting. But no, I was in terms of using that tattoo. I was specifically thinking of the culture of people who get that tattoo and wanted to kind of represent. I feel like the emotion of that, like you know, it feels very. Um, like not gang culture, but like it, it feels like a, the kind of tattoo you would see like a type of working class or, or I wanted to represent a thing that came from a, a non-formal sort of highbrow place. And so the, it's meant to really replicate the history of that as a tattoo and the sort of like religiosity of, of getting images like embedded into your skin and into your body of particular kind of religious histories. And it's meant to match with the tattoo that the other woman has, right? It's, on, they're on meant her, to be. The other woman has it on her front. So it's kind of a, you're playing with the front back thing. Lots of art historical classical reference there. Yeah. So she has the, the sort of call signs tattooed around, you know, on her shoulders, or on her chest, on her shoulders. And they're from a, a type of Russian rocket engine. Um, And so I was thinking about these two modes of escape, like Harriet Tubman, you know, an underground railroad and people escaping into slavery and actual, like the actual escape of gravity into outer space. Right. And, And condensing those two ideas together. And like literally these two figures are communicating, like the woman with the Harriet Tubman tattoo is whispering some sort of plot into the ear of the woman with the <laughs> with the call letters. Yeah, so I was really thinking about, again, you know, we were talking about the drawing Ascension, like the notion of leaving Earth as a, I guess say metaphorical idea, is in so much of my work. And it's not about like a literal representation of, of going into space, but it's about if we were able to like figure out how to move beyond the notion of race in America, I don't think we can even imagine what that would look like. And so like the unknown nature of outer space for me is that, like it's the same thing. And so these are people who are trying to get liberated into this unknown. In the recent work, in work you've made this year, you have gotten really interested in drapery and these extravagant, enormous pieces of cloth draped over and around and on bodies. Why? It's because I love to do it. I mean, I love to draw. Like, it kind of looks like that. <laughs> it's, it's, kinda, it, you know, there, there's a Baroqueness to it that kind of suggests right. you're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a way to kind of, you know, I think quickly get to, you know, I, I think some of the, the drama that you're talking about. And it, it, it's just an element that you can ad that does a little bit of that kind of work but it's also i mean just as a thing to challenge and keep track of like it's fun to 
work with that stuff on that scale and to see if I can actually do it. You know, for me, I love to draw. I mean, it's kind of the thing that I do. It doesn't come easy by any means. It's such of a struggle for me that like I kind of push myself to do things that I think some artists might do a bit easier. But for me, it takes a little bit of concentration and work and and I, I like to like practice at it and some of them feel vaguely kind of Olga era Picasso in the in the mix of the present and the classical reference. Although one of yours has a comic book in it and so Picasso <laughs> didn't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. You must be th- you're talking about I turned myself into myself. That one's very yeah. You have spoken before about how Carrie James Marshall is is a favorite of yours. He and he and Charles White. One of the things that Marshall does in his work is he picked early in his career a single color he was going to use for stink, for skin tone. And he's been on the show before and he's talked about why and we'll link to that on manpodcast.com. That is a um, you know you you've consciously decided to do kind of the opposite. All of your skin tones are different. They are a a wide range of black and brown. Was that something, was that a decision you remember consciously making as a a much younger artist? Do you remember engaging with the way Marshall did it and thinking that you wanted to do it a different way? Not, not in terms of, of Kara James Marshall's work. Like, as I mentioned before, I was using in the past that brown butcher paper, which you know, only came in like variations of like two or three colors that were not that distinct from each other. Like, you know, you can hold them up next to each other and see the difference, but when they're not next to each other, it all feels like the same exact brown. When I moved, so that gave me like one consistent skin color, skin tone to kind of, as a, as a sort of like under kind of thing, right, to work from. When I moved away from that paper and began dyeing the paper, particularly as I moved to coffee, I realized like, oh, I can build up the layers of color to give me different skin tones. And that wasn't like, that was, I don't want to say accidental, but it was just a discovery in like working with the material. When I initially started and I would use tea, I could dye the paper and I really worked to kind of get to like a very particular kind of golden tone but there wasn't a lot of like variation when I switched to coffee I realized like oh I can like layer and layer and layer to to basically open up that range of skin tones to kind of really and that was like exciting because I felt like I can like expand the representation like even beyond like you know my ability to kind of represent skin tone just through value and that sort of thing but like this color thing without actually using color. I can like explain this, expand this representation. I don't think it has been as much of a conscious decision in the way that Carrie James Marshall uses that sort of black color as, a, as an idea. I think for me, it is just part of the way that I'm representing like a group of people. Robert Pruitt, thanks so much. Thank you, thanks for having me, I really enjoyed it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.